you have to have the right mindset. If you're going to do big things, you kind of have to be willing to be tenacious and be willing to also fail. Like you're going to be uncomfortable because you're going to fail at some point. <laughs> and that's not something people love to know, but it's something that's just the reality. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. Our guest today is a lifelong learner who loves working with data, educating people about data science, and helping them excel in technical roles. Through the development of his expertise in statistics, machine learning, Python, and R, he's cultivated a passion for sharing his work and experience with others to help them become excited about data science, as well as educating executives on all aspects of data science. He holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics from the University of Wisconsin, a master's in business analytics from the University of Minnesota, a master's in mathematics from Arizona State University, a graduate certificate in statistics from Arizona State University, and a PhD in mathematics from Arizona State University. And if that's not impressive enough already, he's earned dozens of course certificates for MOOCs such as Coursera and DataCamp. He's built a solid career in mathematics education, having held positions as a graduate teaching and research instructor at Arizona State University, Director of Mathematics and Science Education at Oregon State University, and on the Biostatistics Faculty at the University of Minnesota. In the industry, he's held roles such as the Director of Data Science and Analytics for HealthEast, Senior Data Scientist at LinkedIn, Principal of Data Management and Data Science at CoreLogic, and is currently the Senior Director and Head of Data Science and Insights at List Reports. In his current role at List Reports, he leads the business intelligence, data science, and research science teams and is involved in strategy development, resource planning, as well as hands-on technical development and deployment. His team's mission is to deliver easy-to-use, world-class tools that seamlessly integrate into the daily lives of realtors. On top of all of his professional experience, he's been invited to speak on more podcasts than I can count, an innumerable number of speaking engagements and online seminars. Most recently, he's given a keynote address titled, Data Science is Not About How Many Models You Build at the 2019 Data Hack Summit, as well as a panel discussion on the topic of why 85% of AI projects fail, alongside some titans of our industry, such as Terry Singh and Kunal Jain. When he's not crushing it as an acclaimed data scientist, he loves being outside, especially enjoying the tons of hiking and cycling trails all over California, as well as traveling so that he maintains a healthy perspective of the world. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a lifelong learner and rock star of our industry, Dr. Eric Weber. Eric, thank you so much for taking out time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here, especially in, I think when I accepted the invitation, the world wasn't quite where it is now. Um, I wasn't, I think I remember thinking, I wonder if I'll be free at 4.15 PM Pacific on that day. And now I can pretty much make meetings of any time of any day because there's no commute. There's no, it's a, it's a strange time, but it's also a really good time to be able to talk about 
our industry, the things happening. People are feeling a lot of pain and anxiety and stress. And I think it really helps to have perspective on what it all means for us as a community. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh yeah, definitely, man. Happy to have you. And yeah, it's an interesting way how all of a sudden the world just got so much smaller because we're all in this weird thing together and, and, you know, having the technology to keep us connected in, in this way is pretty awesome as well. But I'd like to, to talk about your journey into data science. Can you talk to us about how you first heard of data science? What drew you to the field and some of the challenges you faced breaking into the field? Yeah, that's a, this is a really, it's a good question. One I think that is often potentially overlooked because even with data science, people talk about it as if it's pretty new. Um, like they're like, oh, data science is still, it's actually been around for a number of years, but people's journeys into it continue to amaze me. They're all different. <laughs> like there's no one set way to end up in a data science um, position. For me, um, I was in the academic world teaching statistics and programming um, experimental design, things like that, all the way up until 2013, 2014. And I distinctly remember being in a phone conversation with my dad. And he, at the time, was an engineer uh, for United Health. And he was like, Well, they're talking about all of this big data stuff, like blah, 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 blah. He's like, Don't you do things with data? I was like, I do, but I don't know if I do things with big data. And that kind of kicked off my fascination. I think I remember after that, that was the first time I dove into um, some of the online certificates. And when I started doing some of the MOOCs that you see on my profile with like Johns Hopkins, I was like, what is this all about? And I learned in a lot of ways that the concepts and the ideas that I already knew and used were pretty foundational to working with data. For me, it was having to think about how to operate with data at scale. Whereas I was used to being able to run things on my local machine, right? I could run things in R. I was programming in R when there was nothing pretty about it. Um, it was a brutal experience. Now I look at it and it's like this beautiful, tidy, <laughs> clean thing to do. Back then it was not. Um, so for me, my journey was all about figuring out two things. One, how to work with data at scale. And two, what does it mean to actually do data science in a business context. And those two things are really, really important. And they also, I think they're probably overlooked. My transition really entailed a lot of learning about what it meant to really do data science in a business context. You can learn about data science um, and how it operates within business, but to actually make it effective for business is actually quite a journey. Um, to go from an academic side where you're in a classroom and you're used to delivering things in a way and then you push them over the line and then they're done, almost like a homework assignment. In our industry, it's sort of continuous. Um, and that continuous learning, that continuous improvement, and the fact that even when you create projects, you never really get to turn them in as homework, that was sort of an eye-opening experience for me. Aside from the day-to-day -day business, um, to go away from taking my teaching mindset from the classroom to um, my team, that was a huge experience for me.
Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. Push it over the line and submit it like it's homework. When I was a biostatistician, I felt like I was doing homework all day long uh, and just like submitting assignments to the government. It was, yeah, it's totally different on the other side in business. Like you said, everything is continuous. Um, But I'm curious, where do you see the field headed in the next two to five years? I think I see the field headed in a non-uniform direction. And I think that is maybe the most valuable thing that we have going on for us is data science has evolved into what it always probably was meant to be is a bunch of sub-disciplines. Just like the idea of saying that you're a data engineer or that you're an engineer overall, there's so many different types of engineering. They all require different skill sets. There's very few people who are experts in everything. So as much as there's always been a lot of debate, I think people like, do we need specialists or generalists? I think we're getting to the point where specialties are the norm, but that's not a bad thing. Just because you're focused on time series work, generally speaking, doesn't mean that you're not skilled. Just because you tend to focus on machine learning or system design doesn't mean you're not skilled. It's just infeasible at this, at this point to hire someone who's good at everything. That isn't just from a candidate perspective, though. It's from a company perspective. They're figuring out that what they've done in the past, which was hire data scientists and basically make them responsible for all things data, it's actually really tricky to figure out how to use them effectively. This is produced in a lot of companies, reorganizations, merging parts of data science with engineering, parts of data science with product. In some cases, data science has become its own entity within an organization. And so for me, what's coming next is this alignment because companies are at the point now where they're like, how do we get the ROI out of this practice? And in a lot of cases, getting that ROI out is making sure you figure out that there actually are sub-disciplines and you can't hire one person to do the job of three, even if they're extraordinarily talented. And so there's, there's a simultaneous change, like students and people prepping to go into the field are changing companies are changing and how they hire and what their expectations are. And I think in a lot of cases, it's actually this really interesting experiment to see what's going to happen with people that are working with data. At some point, it still is this like sexiest job, but companies still have a bottom line. And more so than ever with the current public health and economic conditions that we're in, companies are going to be evaluating the true value of essentially everything. <laughs> within their midst. And while in the last 10 years, it's perhaps been easier and they've had budgets that allow them a little bit of wiggle room, for the next 12 to 24 months, that's not going to exist. And so I see it as like a real prove it time <laughs> for data science. As much as it's hard to think about that, it really, I really think it's gonna be that in the next year or two. So kind of in that vision of the future, well, what do you think is going to separate great data scientists from merely good ones? Um, flexibility. Like this idea of being and flexible doesn't mean that 
you can handle a whole bunch of tasks incoming at once. It means that you can sort of ramp up your, not just flexibility. I think the best way to put this is, you know what's required to do different tasks and you don't always use a uniform approach to do everything. A data science task Task A is probably always going to be different from data science task B. And they're probably going to require different skills. They're going to require different models. They're going to require people to understand how much is actually needed to solve the problem. You don't need to build an incredibly powerful model for every situation, but you need to know what's going to allow the business to thrive in a productive way. The other part is businesses, like I said, are going to be looking for the bottom line value of data science as a practice. And I'm saying this specifically if you're not talking about research groups and teams that are at Google and Amazon and all of these places that will continue to be research focused. They may not be the immediate business value. In almost every other case, data scientists who understand that their skill set gives value to the business by actually delivering business value and not just scientific value is going to be incredibly important. This, I think there's a disconnect sometimes. People go into data science positions thinking that it is doing a series of projects and to establish really good code and the optimal solution but then they kind of hand it off as if the business is going to magically use the thing that they've created. That I don't think is a good assumption. This flexibility to pick the right approach or to also know why an approach may or may not work and your ability to really transform the business with your solutions. Those two things are going to differentiate data scientists who are going to stick around at companies and data scientists who are going to be viewed as really scientists. There's this weird, weird perception of like, oh, they just do the sciencey stuff. If a company is looking at you as you do the sciencey stuff, I can probably guarantee that they don't see how you're impacting the business. And those are really key things for people to keep in mind. What I got from flexibility is like the ability to operate comfortably with a compass instead of a step-by-step roadmap. Yeah. Um, I, I love your LinkedIn um, headline. I learn every day. That's freaking awesome. Uh, can you talk to me about the importance of being a lifelong learner and kind of how you've adopted that to be such a big part of your identity? I think it goes back to some people ask me a lot, Like, why did you go to school so much? And the degrees are one thing, but I think if you look at school and any program as a chance to like form habits, it's a much better illustration of its long-term value to you and your career. This idea of like coming to class or coming to work, whichever it may be, ready to go and ready to do things that you haven't done before, that mentality, I think, kind of is what drives me to think about my work and to think about the value that I can provide. I think we often go to school and we think about getting a degree that we continue to improve enough and do enough until we get granted an education, right? Or we get granted a certificate. But in almost every case, those skills you learn are going to be outdated in in, in our field, every two years, probably, like probably less. And it's much more about bringing the energy and bringing the desire to go into situations where you don't know how to do things perfectly and being uncomfortable 
And so if I really put it how I want, like my goal is probably to be uncomfortable most days with something. I think that mentality is a good illustration of the scientist component of data science. It's not just this series of skills that you deploy on well-formed problems. You should probably be working on stuff that isn't clear or isn't very easy. And that to me is why data science often is a, tends to be a more highly compensated position or it deserves to be in some cases because you're willing to push outside the comfort zone and solve things that people don't really have a good answer for. That's really what all the growth occurs, right? Is in that discomfort when you're really stretching yourself. People understand that physically when you're working out your muscles. Yeah, like your muscles are going to grow when you are stressing mm -hmm. them, but we can't see it inside the brain happening, right? So they don't, they don't make that correlation. What's your advice to aspiring data scientists who feel like they have not learned enough to start applying for jobs? I think that's a one that's a fantastic question. Two, I think there's never going to no one's ever going to go ever going to know enough <laughs> to solve every problem. It's more about the things I mentioned before. Do you have a diverse and deep enough skill set to tackle problems with different approaches and how do you know that? How do you assess what solutions a problem needs? And also, like, are you willing and hungry to deliver for a business and not just write a script and call it good enough? Because in my experience, writing a script and producing a report tends to have actually pretty very little business value. It's all the actions that come after that. As much as people want to imagine that that report is going to get picked up and implemented, it's not going to. <laughs> not unless you're the one pushing. And so it's less about... Do you know everything or do you know this mountain of information? It's more about, do you have a variety of skill sets? Do you understand how to work on different problems with different approaches? And are you ready to demonstrate that you can solve a problem for that business? This is why I think for most interviews, a huge amount of the value is that you can show that you understand how their business operates and how you potentially have a lot of value for that business. It's less about checking the boxes on, can you build a gradient boosted tree? Can you train a neural net? Do you understand what back propagation is? That stuff is potentially useful, but to me, it's about, do you know when to use it and why it might be helpful? And does the business problem you're trying to solve actually need it? If it doesn't, then be willing to say so <laughs> because otherwise everything you do is going to end up being trained on a neural net and that's just not going to deliver the value you want for the business. So kind of the opposite question in a sense, what's your advice for those data scientists who think that they've learned enough and don't need to learn anymore to be successful? Well, there's two, two possibilities. One is that you've learned enough so that you can do the daily tasks that are asked of you in your current position, but have you learned enough to help the business change and actually ask questions in reverse, right? You can, you might reach a plateau in a business where you're not asked to do anything harder than a certain level. And my question at that point is, okay, are you ready to leave if they're not going to continue to push you? Or 
are you ready to contribute and learn enough so that you can push them to another level to do things that they couldn't really imagine doing before? And so there may be enough. Like you may, and again, this is a, I think this is a pretty personal decision. You can probably determine that you know enough to get by, but getting by is not a long-term solution to delivering value for a business because what you're doing right now to get by is probably going to be automated in a few years or there's going to be a tool that makes it super easy to do what you do. And so then it's a question of, okay, what are you doing that the rest of the business that, that somebody else can't. And most often that is having formed relationships and knowledge about the business that other people could not do, even if they were the most technically skilled person on the face of the planet. And that's where you start to see businesses willing to retain people because they know that if they lose that person, it's going to be a net negative on them. And that typically is where people define themselves is their ability to transform things on the business side. What tips do you have for a data scientist in a team environment who's maybe scared of looking like they don't know something, but doesn't want to openly communicate that to their teammates? One, you got to get over it. <laughs> like there's, I, I really don't like giving, I try to be gentle in some cases, but in this case it is a, if you don't know something, there's one of two ways it comes out. Two, one, you ask somebody and maybe you risk in that moment, not feeling like you know everything or two, you do something without asking people. And because you didn't ask, you miss out on something super important or you don't do something up to the expectation level that they have. And then the feedback in that case is super negative because you've turned, you've generated a solution that is not sufficient. At the same time, you've also illustrated that you don't know what you're doing or you missed something. In either case, you're going to have to in some way demonstrate that you don't know everything. It's probably easier to do that to ask somebody else on your team. But this also comes down to interpersonal dynamics. Dynamics are hard. There are teams where asking questions may just not be the norm. And there are teams where asking questions is well accepted and supported. I tend to be happiest and I recommend that people try to find teams where asking questions and being open is, is valued. That doesn't mean that you're shoulder tapping somebody every 15 minutes because at that point, no one's going to be able to do their job. But it does mean that part of what you assess for the value of a data science position and whether you're a good fit is are the people you're working with, are they open? Are they willing to chat? Are they willing to teach you things here and there? And, that's, and, and if you're uncomfortable doing that and scared about it, that's also the time where you should really be talking like this is where a good leader should be setting the tone. And where I see a lot of teams fail is their dynamic is often a reflection of their leader or lack thereof. And so as much as it's about, are you like, in, in my opinion, you just go for it, ask questions, be open about it. If that's not the norm, then maybe long-term you're not a good fit for that team, but you learn that either way. <laughs> either way, asking questions is critical. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it, it really is your responsibility 
to just be vulnerable, right? Like Mm -hmm. even if it goes against the norm of the team, like it's on you to just be vulnerable and own up to it, unafraid to talk about your shortcomings, right? It's uncomfortable too. It's definitely uncomfortable, (laughs) but you get better at it as time goes on. You're going to look stupid at some point in your career. Mm -hmm. I've looked stupid many times (laughs) in my career and that's just... It's just the norm. You're going to eventually look silly or ask questions that don't make sense. You're not always going to be the expert in the room. And if you are, you're probably in the wrong room, right? Like it's probably not a room you want to be in (laughs) at all. Yeah. Yeah. So do you consider data science, machine learning to be an art or purely a hard science? I think science in general is an art. So I think it'd be really hard to, I think any science done right requires technical mastery, but also there's a whole lot of gray area in how you do things and the choices that you make. This is why in science, there are people who are good and there are people who are great. And there are people who are probably like legendary because even though they might all have similar technical skill sets, it's often about how they ask questions about how they answer them and how they are pretty relentless that kind of defines people. So science taken the way that I think about it is definitely an art. And in so many ways, like data science is an art. And something that is cool is that as you become better at it, you start to see that there's a lot of ways to approach problems. There's so much open space that's not clear, even though you know all of the algorithms. (laughs) It's not always obvious. What, it, what makes data scientist A from better than data scientist B? It's not in the model that they build typically. It's in like how they actually define a question and then pursue that answer. What role does being creative and curious play in being successful as a data scientist? And, and how can someone who doesn't really see themselves as creative be creative? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, with data science, I mean, creativity... I think creativity is often assumed to be this this sort of wishy-washy thing. Like, how do you define what creativity is? And it's not about your ability to construct some beautiful canvas from nothing. Creativity is probably actually about a lot of small decisions. And like, when you're tuning a hyperparameter, when you're tuning something else, when you choose what model to use, or you choose how to like create a particular feature in your data set that others may not, right? Creativity there is often, it it doesn't look like the type of creativity that we tend to think about in general. Creativity is also in how you pose a question. Are you, very often people who are really talented are asking different questions than people who are just starting out. So creativity, people like, I'm not creative. Well, I'm not creative in like 90% of my life. I go to the same store, I go to the same restaurants, I don't like (laughs) change it up that much. But when it comes to like how you practice and how you show up and play in data science, like creativity is about the small decisions, not like some grand (laughs) art piece that you're trying to design. Like I kind of define it as just putting old things together in new ways to solve, come up with like a novel solution to something, right? So we talked a little bit about uh, how, you know, in our previous roles was kind of homeworky, right? Pushing something over the line and submitting it. Uh, But what, what challenges do you see data scientists who are always looking for a hard and fast rule 
or a step-by-step -step recipe to follow, uh, possibly face when they're working outside of a, a homework or a study environment, and they're in the real world where things are way more ambiguous. Yeah, I think the challenge is that step-by-step -step doesn't work super well in the real world. Um, even like the scientific method seems really well defined and like, okay, we do this and we do this and we do this, but really it's like a sequence of back and forth and a sequence of testing and hypothesis development and testing and hypothesis development and it's iterative. So I think part of what people are not used to is like there's a continuous cycle of development when it comes to doing things in data science that is not present in homework. Typically like when you set a random seed and then you're deciding what your testing and training data is like that's step one. And then you are doing subsequent steps from there all the way to where you present like the quality of your model. But in practice, like data science has so many other components to it. The solution you develop may not work for the business. The solution you develop may have issues because the data that you sampled from was not representative of all of the customer base, right? There are a whole lot of potential problems. And I think part of being in data science is that when you're doing the homework version of data science, you're not necessarily used to, or a lot of the, a lot of the normal issues you face are abstracted away from you. You get to focus on the stuff that fits step one, two, three, four, and five. But when in reality, it's like all the stuff that falls outside of that is the real problem <laughs> when it comes to doing most of this field. So you learn like so much of our homework and our education focuses on like the 10% of the stuff that you're going to like you spend 90% of your education on 10% of the stuff you're going to do in the real world. <laughs> and I think that's a hard adjustment for people to make. They're like, oh, wait but I learned how to do all this stuff. I learned how to use, um, I use, learned how to use NumPy. I learned how to use uh, Keras or TensorFlow. And like, I'm like, that's great. If you got to that point, that means you've done something awesome. It probably means that you've spent a lot of hours on it. And I think while we talk about it and it's really popular to say 80% of your time is spent working on getting data in the right format. Like I don't think it resonates with people until they're actually sitting there doing it. <laughs> and they're like, Oh my God, this is actually terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like going from raw data yeah. The jumbled up Rubik's cube and then having to like <laughs> form it up into, you know, a nice cubes with nice, you know, colored sides and everything changing it up a little bit now here. Uh, so what's it mean for you to be a good leader in data science and how can an individual contributor embody the characteristics of a good leader without necessarily having the title? I, I often differentiate between like a leader and a manager because they're not always the same thing. A leader and, and so even if you are in charge of people, it doesn't mean that you're a leader. It means that you perhaps are giving people tasks. I look at leadership. Um, there's an interesting book that's called Multipliers. And it's a really, really good book. I think it is my, my personal... I think a lot of it resonates with me because being a good leader is about figuring out how to unlock, amplify, and develop the people around you. And in most cases, that means that you're not very often, you're not going to be the most technically competent person in the room, you're not going to be an expert in every area. But you have to figure out how to create that environment where people can actually develop and want to 
want to not only want to be a part of your team, but like it's mutual. You give them something, you help them develop, accelerate, get so good at something that they're ready to move on. And at the same time, they give you extraordinary work. I think in that book and a lot of other cases, like, you know, a good leader in organizations when you ask people like in a team matching phase, right? Like a Google or Facebook or any of these places, if you ask them what team should you work on, like you should work on this person's team. And that's typically a good indicator that that person does something over and above just managing. It typically means that they're actually accelerating the career of the people around them. And so when I think about data science leaders, whether it's a manager or someone who's has a team of five or 500, it's all about, are you accelerating the people around you? From an individual contributor perspective, so many, there are a lot of leaders who are individual contributors. An individual contributor, I think, has this stigma that it's like, you only do things for yourself. (laughs) When in fact, most of the things that you do that are impactful are about changing the people around you and changing the systems around you, right? If you look at most, most companies, how they evaluate leadership is your impact. And your impact as an individual contributor can be huge. You can make it easier for your whole org to do something. You can help develop the skill set of those people around you, learn how to do something in a better way. So title to me, well, titles are important in some way because they signal things about level and what your responsibilities are. Like your title isn't always going to tell you if someone's a leader or not. You really have to know more about working with them. That's a great book, Multipliers. Um, you know, I've I've had the misfortune of working for a diminisher, yep. and you know, immediately after working for my diminisher, I, I worked for a accidental diminisher. When I took on this other role, I had the opportunity to just become the the multiplier myself and really try to embody those characteristics. And it's uh, in my current role, I'm definitely working for for a multiplier right now, and it's so refreshing to to have somebody who you just want to give all you can to to help bring the initiatives to to fruition. I think what's hard for people to understand is if you're in the right environment, the multiplier leader creates an environment that people want to be a part of. It becomes less about your compensation and less about your title because you actually are just enjoying what you're doing. It's hard in technical skills because we're taught that technical skills are kind of the defining feature (laughs) of a data scientist. But when it comes to organizational impact and team growth and team cohesiveness, someone has to drive the boat. Someone has to, and that doesn't mean that they have to push everybody along, but it means that they have to like generally orient people in the right way and let them do the, what they're good at. And I think that is a, hard thing for people to understand. Speaking of, of the technical skills, a lot of up and coming data scientists tend to focus primarily on the hard technical skills. And they think that that's what's going to separate them from the rest of the crowd. What are some soft skills that candidates are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? I think this can be a, <clears throat> this is a tough one because when it comes to interviewing, people gravitate toward the hard skills because they're cleaner, right? They're like, am I good at SQL? <laughs> am I good at applied stats? Am I, can I do leak code? Like these things are more measurable in some way. Soft skills though are much more about 
in my way, they're, they're, they do a couple of things. One, they allow you to connect with people, right? And this doesn't mean that you have to be a people person. <laughs> this, this just means that you have to have an approach ready so that you can demonstrate that you're someone who people would like to work around. That genuinely means sometimes just asking people about their interests. What do they care about? What motivates them? Like, if you turn it and say, what would you want someone to ask you? What would you want to share about your work? Like, it's okay to ask people and to share those things and to really talk about those things deeply. So while it's a soft skill, it's like forming connections with other people, even if you're not a people person, is still really important because it makes them feel like they can imagine working with you as a teammate. Your ability, and I think a lot of people are like, well, public speaking skills. I don't necessarily think it's public speaking skills. I think it's the ability to be clear. Your clarity of communication. There's a lot of cases where people say a lot of words, but they don't say anything, right? It's like, so it's uncomfortable, but record yourself when you answer a question. I think a good example, I think there were a couple of major MBA schools this year that in lieu of the in-person interview, they had candidates record like a one minute or two minute response to two questions that they didn't know ahead of time. I think it's a really good mentality. Are you able to communicate um, something useful in a clear way? Can you do it within a two minute window? Because that's what's going to be asked of you in a business context. So can you communicate about something in a relatively concise manner? That's key. And we all like to think that we know everything, but then when it comes time to actually explaining it, some people just go on and on and on. And that's not what's needed in a business context. So getting to the point, making people feel connected with you. And part of getting to the point is also making sure that you can communicate about the ideas, complex ideas in ways that make sense to people who may not be well-versed in your field, right? Using a lot of words to a lot of people talking about machine learning, you could literally say any word you wanted and say machine learning and they would get the same message out of it. You have to make it mean something to them. And those three things, I think, are really key when it comes to what we what we would call soft skills. Yeah, I was, it's funny you were saying how people use a lot of words but don't say much of anything. I was just telling my wife the other day because every morning the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, uh, I think 11 a.m. comes out and gives a national address to Canadians regarding the COVID situation. And every time I'm like, dude, he just is using a whole bunch of words to like not say, <laughs> not say anything. Yep, we. I think uh, in a lot of cases politicians have uh, thrived on the ability to say very little while saying lots of words. And it's, but it's tough. You see at times like this where people are stressed and they're in crisis and they're anxious, the ability to say something meaningful in a concise way is a pretty sought after skill set, And it's not out there, but like a lot of people just are not good at it. (laughs) Yeah. So for those data scientists out there who, haven't yet broken into the field, um, how could they develop their business acumen and product sense? I think there are a lot of, there's a few ways. I mean, there are a lot of companies that post and host their own blogs about the problems that they work on. And very often the questions they ask will be focused on those same problems. 
So if you think through some of the things that these companies are tackling, think about how you would approach them. Think about why you would approach them in that way. There's a lot of problems that are transportable between companies when it comes to like for SaaS companies, like customer churn, stuff like that is going to be sort of a universal problem that they face. For products and metric tracking, that's going to be relatively universal. Events may be different, but the concept of product analytics and data science is pretty consistent. Um, so you can prepare for a lot of product and marketing and sales data science by just doing it for one company. Because the questions that you ask there are probably broadly applicable. Um, for more specialized roles, that's where understanding what the company is doing exactly and how they're making money is really important. I recommend that you think that you look at the presentations of people that people from that company have given. They're all over YouTube. They're all over the place. The, the, the PowerPoints are sitting out there. There's video all over the place. Look at some of the case studies that they've been working on. At least gives you a sense for the type of data and what they're dealing with. You can't prepare for everything, but if you have thought through a lot of different cases, I think it's really going to be really beneficial to you in the long run. Yeah, it's really, really good advice. It's actually, the exact same advice that I give to the mentees that that uh, that I'm responsible for. It's awesome. Pretty much the exact same thing you said. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. What advice or insight can you share with people breaking into the field who are looking at some of these job postings, uh, some that seemingly want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up into one person, yeah. and they end up just feeling dejected and discouraged from applying or even trying to enter the field? You just have to shine with what you're good at. And you're not the one who's going to make the determination about if you have the requisite skill set for that job. They're going to be the ones who determine that. So... Getting dejected is basically making a judgment before someone's actually made a judgment. There are a lot of jobs that people apply for that they don't have all of the skills listed because a lot of cases, those companies figure out pretty quickly that no one like that actually exists in the real world. They just don't. It's a uh, companies often will post things because they've seen their competitors use a similar job posting or they've just aggregated all the words from all the job postings that they've seen. It doesn't mean that they know what they're looking for or that they're going to actually like minimum requirements for five years. Like doesn't mean that they're going to hold to that. It's that you have to have a PhD. Like in a lot of cases, those things are put up there to prevent them from getting 10,000 applications. But I think you have to be comfortable with what value you deliver. If you think that your skill set and your background can provide value for that company in that position, then go for it. There's, it's not a frustrating, I mean, it's a frustrating thing because job search is imperfect and the interview process is imperfect. I've failed way more interviews than I've succeeded in. And I think that's true of almost everybody at this point. <laughs> you interview enough and like even the best people end up failing or not getting called back. 
Um, and that's just a reality. It sucks. Job searching is not a pleasant thing. It's much more about your tenacity. And if you let yourself get down with it, it's going to, it'll have a net negative effect. Like you kind of, if you feel yourself getting down then take a pause until you're not, otherwise you're not going to be able to bring your energy on a daily basis. What are some challenges that a, a quote unquote notebook data scientist is going to face when it comes time to productionize a model? And do you have any tips uh, for them to overcome those hurdles? Most of the time when we train and build models, we don't think about their scalability and we don't think about their scalability within, within a production level system about competing for resources with other things. We don't necessarily think about their latency, right? We don't think about how long would it take to serve up a recommendation to an individual user. You kind of take the input data as given when in fact the input data may actually be streaming in real time. And so there's so many, and so for me, it's not, it's about timing. Like how does this model work within this, within the ecosystem of that product? And also, scalability like do you have the resources to be able to actually operate that model in a reasonable time frame a user is not going to wait 10 seconds for a recommendation to be made it might you might be willing to wait 10 seconds but they're not going to and so production is in many cases about not just creating the model but building it deploying it and how do you maintain it how do you know that something's going wrong with it before you have thousands of timeouts happen because it's taking too long and your users are pissed. <laughs> like you have to really think carefully about, and this is like, people are like, well, what is system design for data scientists? And I think we don't, we don't have to think about it generally speaking for decently sized companies because the engineering teams tend to worry about the actual production and platform work. But at the same time, you have to build things that have a chance for actually making it there. There are so many things we take for granted. Feature engineering, data ingestion, training, and deployment. We control a lot of things locally that you don't control in a production environment. And understanding what those things are and how to handle them is really important. Oftentimes, when you're developing a machine learning model, the intervention, the therapeutic you're building is your model itself. And then you've also got to assess the impact of that therapeutic once it's out there doing its thing as well. Most of the, ki- most of the time, we're trying, to, we're trying to either influence or understand behavior. If you are trying to influence behavior, if you're then influencing it, influencing it in a way that makes your model unable to continue to positively affect things. Like, I mean, you think about it, you train your model on a certain subset of data, right? Ranges of input variables, stuff like that. Let's say that the model you create changes people's behavior so that the input data coming in or the recommendations that need to be served don't fall within that range of the model and how you built it originally. It's almost like the model can create a scenario where the model doesn't work well anymore. And that's weird and not intuitive, but it's not like you get to see the model every time it comes through and gets trained again. You have to actually build the model to sort of retune Mm -hmm. as it goes into production. And you also have to be thinking about what the effect it has on your user base. What are the guardrail metrics that you care about for your users that are going to signal if something's going well or not going well? Because if you're doing something at scale and something bad happens for a lot of users, like that's a big problem. You can't just like, can't just 
unroll that very easily. Yeah. So, so last question here before we jump into a lightning round, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? I think it's that you have to be pretty tenacious. <laughs> you have to be tenacious about like, if you want to be good at something, if you want to be skilled and you want to make an impact, you kind of are going to have to do things that make you uncomfortable. I started posting on LinkedIn two years ago, somewhere in that range. I was terrified of posting on social media. Like I, I gen- generally speaking, don't like social media, but I started sharing things and people find a way to resonate with it. And it becomes super powerful and amazing if you just think about it <laughs> in the right way. But you have to have the right mindset. If you're going to do big things, you kind of have to be willing to be tenacious and be willing to also fail. Like you're going to be uncomfortable because you're going to fail at some point. (laughs) And that's not something people love to know, but it's something that's just the reality. So jumping into a quick lightning round here, what's a topic academic or otherwise outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching on? Um, social science, man. I think understanding the world in which you live and operate and the dynamics and behavior of human beings, that's at the end of the day who we're really dealing with in most cases. If you don't understand the broader context in which they live and operate and the stressors present there, it's hard to understand who your users are and what you're building things for. It's huge. It's important. And it's something that I wish more people did. What's your favorite question to ask during an interview? (laughs) I think it depends on the interview, but I generally really like to know about a time when someone not just failed, but they had to admit failure to somebody else. And I don't care if it's in a work context or not. That doesn't matter to me. Like, and you will not, would not believe the number of just fascinating responses that gives because people this, this attaches very emotionally to people and they're often very willing to share this, but it tells you a lot about how they respond to something negative that happens, how they share something that is by its nature uncomfortable, but how they not only shared it, but in a lot of cases they learned from it. That's one of my favorite questions. What's the weirdest question you've been asked in an interview? <laughs> oh, I've... <sighs> There was a, I'm trying to think about exactly how it was phrased, but it was something about, um, they basically put me in this situation and they're like, how would you build an algorithm to judge hotness of something? And I'm like, are we building Facebook back in 2004? Like, this is really weird guys. Like, and it was with this really small company and really like, I I could tell at that point, it was like, not going to be a professional experience I wanted to pursue. But they're like, Mm. what features would you use? I'm like, this is super strange. Like, let's not, let's not go there. And, but it tells you a lot. The questions people ask tell you a lot about who they are. And that one told me enough that I was like, all right, I'm good. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. What's uh, the number one book you would recommend our audience to read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Um, I think Blink is probably the one that has resonated with me for a long time, mostly because it talks about how we make decisions and how those decisions are often not logical. And the way in which we process information in order to do something is really fascinating. The amount of effort we give to certain things and the lack of effort we get to others and how our brain either makes complex decisions simple or simple decisions complex. It teaches you a lot about like human cognition and it always reminds me that like, even if we make assumptions about what our users are going to do, 
we're usually wrong. Because <laughs> yeah. we just don't know. We just don't. And that's really hard. Have you read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? I think Malcolm Gladwell in Blink uh, builds heavily on, on some of the arguments that were made yes. in that book. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Both of them really good books. Really good um, book. So I don't know if this is still true for you, but I've, you know, in a previous interview of yours, I, I heard that you're, like me, a very early riser. Yep. Uh, so still 4 a.m.? Uh, it's usually, it's more like five now. I sleep in yeah. a little. Weird. It's weird. And like you go to tech companies and they're like 10 a.m. breakfast. I'm like, yeah. I'm up at five guys. Like, I don't know what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's your morning routine like? Oh, I get up and I usually like, I force myself before I allow myself to have coffee and breakfast. I just move what, mm-hmm. 20 minutes of doing something, right? Yeah. Push up, sit ups, doing some, especially now where you're not moving that much on a daily basis. Like it gets your brain ready to go. I apprehensively open Twitter and the news to see what, especially these days, I feel like I'm just opening this like horror show of stuff. I'm like, what happened in the last 12 hours? Mm-hmm. And, but I like to get my mind active. I like to know what's going on in the world. And I really like to also just take some time to be like, All right, what is my day going to look like? What are the big things I have to hammer out? And if you keep those things defined every day, even if you don't finish them, I think you give, make some serious progress against them. Have you read 5am club by Robin Sharma? Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you, do you follow the 2020 formula? No, not really. Like I'm more or less just, I kind of make sure that I get up at five and by seven, I have to have done some productive things. And I basically judge a start to my day that way. Sometimes I have noticed that I'll get off track, especially recently, because I'll just be reading and about everything going on in the world. And I'm like, what, what was that? What have I been doing for the last, the last few hours? But it's, it's crazy how much time slips away. You don't even notice it when you, when you're, Oh, I know it's, It's yeah. really weird. And I'm like, how have I been sitting here for two hours? <laughs> what, is, uh, what motivates you? You know, that's people ask me that question a lot. And I just, I like to know more. I like to know more than I did yesterday. Whatever that, sometimes that's in work. Sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes that's knowing more about myself, <laughs> um, which is an uncomfortable thing to learn. <laughs> and, mm. but it's just like, I'm doing something or I know or understand something I didn't quite get yesterday. And I think sometimes that's small, sometimes that's big, but I tend to like to think about that. If I had a history of defining that, that would be great. But I think when I go to bed, I'm like, all right, I'd learn this today. And that is kind of what led to my LinkedIn tagline in the first place. I love it. So if we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed us to contact 20 year old Eric, what would you tell him? Um, invest in Amazon. No, <laughs> um, it would be, it would actually probably be like, do what you're doing because I, I knew I was headed for the academic world at that point. But if I hadn't gone to the academic world, I probably wouldn't have ended up in this one. I probably would never have thought about my, like I originally wanted to be a high school teacher, math teacher. And I still, I love teaching, but if I hadn't gone to academia, I probably would be in a secondary classroom right now. And it was my journey through academia that made me go this direction. And so I just be like, do what you're doing. I mean, there's probably some uh, exceptions to that. I probably made some bad decisions when I was 20 that I would probably also be like, don't do this when you have the opportunity. But generally speaking, I'm lucky that I took the path I did. What's the uh, best advice you ever received? Pretty simple, but like, 
be humble. Like if you're humble about what you do, it naturally brings people to connect with you. It naturally, and it's not just about connecting with people. It's about keeping yourself humble. As soon as you start thinking you're the best, you are in a position that is not going to be good for you long-term. It is just not a good thing. And so stay humble, not just about yourself to other people, but like actually be humble in your own mind. Realize that you're never going to be the most skilled at what you do. If you think you are, you're not hanging out with the right people. How can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn's the best place. Um, it's easy. If I have a personalized invite message, it's much easier because there's a lot of invites that come in where it's just like, I don't know the person, but you know, tell me who you are, a little bit about you, what you want to learn by connecting and go from there. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking time at your schedule to be here on the show with me. Um, so yeah, so thank you. It was, it was a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it a lot too. Stay safe and stay healthy. 